Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to First Act, a podcast from Koshy's Business Builders. I'm Seth Busby. And I'm Adam Bubb. And each week we speak to Australia's biggest movers and shakers in business and life. What's your favourite First Act conversation so far, Adam? Oh, that is a difficult question. You're throwing me the curveballs right from the get-go. Look, I love them all for different reasons, but I probably laugh the most with the Roxy Jacenko interview and almost shed a tear or two with Jodie Foxes about um, the rise and demise of Shoes of Prey. But look, there's so many great stories and I really I ask anyone just to have a listen. There's so many amazing insights um, and great conversations. Scroll your feed and catch up on any of our first act conversations if you want to hear these candid warts and all stories behind success. Now, today's guest is Jamie Fuller. Jamie's a man who's not afraid of controversy. He's an outspoken advocate for equality in sports, has spoken out on doping and corruption, and is a champion for human rights. He was the founder of sports compression clothing brand Skins, which he took from strength to strength for many years before everything went a little bit pear-shaped. And he's made plenty of mistakes in his entrepreneurial journey, but he always seems to find a learning from the experience. And I'm so happy he's joined us to share his first act story today. Welcome, Jamie. Thanks, Sis, and hi, Adam. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. Now, we always start with our first act icebreaker. Um, Just a random question to get things moving. Your icebreaker for today is, if every single sport was outlawed and we could only keep one to play and watch, what would you choose? Mm, um, Okay. It's cricket. Oh, really? It's got to be. It's got to be cricket, and it's got to be cricket because oh, I think cricket's, for me, cricket's the closest thing that I see as a metaphor for life. Uh, it's it's underpinned, and you could probably say golf as well, um, but for me it, it's underpinned by a set of values that sort of represent that notion that it depending on however you play cricket is how you do life. So did you come from a sporty family? Did sports play much of a role in your life growing up? Um, yes and no. Uh, yes, like an absolute shit uh, athlete. Um, uh, but so never any question of playing at a serious level. Uh, and if you read my biography, I think the first line says something like, um, uh, I, my, my passion in sport is inversely proportional to my, my ability. <laughs> so as crap as I was, it was such a great time and had so much fun and enjoyed the team uh, camaraderie and connection as much as anything. Um, but it, it taught me that you, you you don't have to play at a high level to really deeply and be passionate about what you're doing. So what's your first sporting memory then? <laughs> um, probably playing rugby at St Ives Rugby Club. St Ives, that's where I grew up too. Did you, you yeah. poor bugger? You don't sound very South African, Adam. 
<laughs> Actually, I come from a South African family, but I lost my accent because I came here when I was a child. Anyway, well, enough. You go. <laughs> I, I pulled out the South African accent for this podcast. You know, my job is done. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that, that'd be it. That'd be it. So, yeah, you mentioned um, in your biography about your talent and uh, or lack thereof. So when was it that you realised you were better off off the field than on the field? Well, I don't think there was any question of realising I was better off, better off the field. It was always just recognising that I was always crap on the field. Um, <laughs> and I sort of lucked into the sports business game uh, and that was early 2000, sort of 2002. Um, and even then that was just a bit of a toe in the water. Um and very quickly sort of came to realise that I, I love the industry and I particularly at the, when working with not just elite athletes but elite coaches and realised then that this was something fairly special. Uh, and what also became very clear to me quite quickly was the impact that sport has in all our lives and the power that it has to do things within the community and to do things for people. What would you say has been your driving purpose throughout your career journey, your North Star, and how has that changed or evolved? Yeah, I, Adam, I think the, the one key word for me is fairness. Um, and fairness in particular represented by social justice. So, and, and these, are, these are issues that extend well beyond sport, of course. We're seeing now in the political sphere the concept of fairness coming to the fore over the last recent period. It's always been, don't get me wrong, there's always been an undertone of a, of, of a, of a necessity of fairness. But I think now with the change of government here and with the mood that's going on in the electorate, there's now a, a bit of a demand for that change from the old style of politics to new. And that's also reflected in sport and how sports play. So when I look back in my previous life with, with Skims, that was a journey and a brand that was underpinned by how we would phrase it, um, it was fueling the true spirit of competition. It was how do you get that notion of fairness into sport, which meant that you could celebrate all wonderful acts of sportsmanship and all the, the great things that we see in sport. But likewise, you've got to condemn the shit and the, the corruption and the cheating and the doping. And so that's a, that's a theme that runs not just through sport but also runs through life, again, touching back on that political theme. We want to see an element of fairness where this, this ongoing chasm that's being created between the rich and the poor, this ever-deepening gap, uh, needs, to be, needs to be reduced. And I think that comes back to fairness. It's interesting because you talk about fairness and you're a very vocal um, advocate for diversity and fairness in sport, and yet you didn't go into that as your main career. You decided instead to create a business. You had um, skins, this tech fashion brand in a way, like the, the best active wear any athlete could ever wear. What was the aha moment for you to create skins? I, I lucked into it. Uh, I was introduced to it, funnily enough, by a guy called Graham Arnold. And uh, Arnie was involved with skins 
And Skins had launched in the middle of 2002 and was broke by the end of 2002 and I stepped in just before it was going into bankruptcy and put the money in to save the company and then explored where we could take it. And so that that became a, a pretty a pretty wild ride and I, I went into that business without any forethought and planning. I literally did that. I, I bought it in a two-hour meeting. I had a two-hour meeting with the, the original founder of the concept and then walked out of the meeting and sat in the car and I rang him from the car sitting in his car park and, uh, and I said to him, you know, let's cut the shit. You're evidently in trouble. How much do you need and when do you need it by? And he told me how much he needed and he needed it in six days. So I said to him, all right, I'll meet you in the lawyer's office in three and I'll give you a check. And that's literally what happened. So there was zero due diligence. But it was a, <laughs> it, it was a gut call on my part that I saw something that sparked a lot of interest and I saw a necessity to, to, to move quickly. Uh, so there was never any sense of when, were you, when, when I did that, that that was going to lead where we eventually went. I thought this can be a lot of fun and there was something very special and something that could be capitalised on. And um, <clears throat> But, but I'd, A, I'd never been in the sports industry, B, I'd never been in textiles industry, and C, I'd never been in brand building either. I'd never been in a consumer brand. So I figured it would be a, a pretty wild learning ride along the way. Uh, so did that and then, um, and then had some pretty amazing successes with a huge pile of shit downfall at the end. I'm interested to know in that moment before you went into that meeting, where were you at in your career? Like what had you done at that point that you kind of were going, okay, I I need this new challenge, you know? Like what drove that? So I'd been I'd spent all my life almost all my working life in the printing industry. And it was uh, an awful appalling industry to be in. Uh, manufacturing and you are at the beck and call of anybody. It's it's genuinely a master-servant relationship as a manufacturer. And I was fortunate to have gotten out of manufacturing in 97 and then set up a print brokerage business where I wasn't manufacturing, I was just doing sales and making margin. And th- that actually was very successful and I did really well. But as much as it was successful and I was making a lot of money, I hated it. And so when the opportunity came around to acquire this company, which wasn't Skins at that stage, it was called Compression Garment Technologies, uh, when the opportunity came around to acquire that, I was more than happy to walk away from making all the money that I was making in the other life and do something that I wanted to do. Uh, And I'd also built up a bit of a bank that enabled me able to do that so I was fortunate in that regard but it was a it was a passion play out and more than I'm going to do this for the cash having said that obviously you know the, the objective and the goal was to, to build it up and make it successful and eventually you know sell it off or list it or whatever but uh, that wasn't the primary purpose can you pinpoint an exact moment where the brand just exploded and what you did to get the brand on everyone's lips and hips yeah look this actually this I think I think this is a really interesting part of the story, and I can tell you exactly. It was uh, at the end of coming towards the end of two thousand and four, and we had done. We literally had to grind out every single point of distribution because we took to market a pair of tights that were retailing for one hundred and forty dollars in an unknown brand against brands like Nike, Adi, Reebok, Puma, 
that were selling at 60, 70 bucks for a pair of running tights. And so to get retailers to carry our product was, was a, a, a sweat and a grind. And at the end of 2004, we just happened to luck on a notion of a television campaign. And I remember sitting down with my head of sales and saying to him, if you can show me a pathway to get to distribution in 200 retail doors, I'll put a million bucks on the table and do a TV campaign. Wow. And we did that. And then in 2005, it was June, July, June, July 05, we did the TV campaign, which was around the theme of we don't pay sports stars to wear our products, they pay us. Uh, which was rooted in truth because we we were selling to all the elite athletes and teams and organisations, not just in Australia but in the UK. Uh, we did that, and the, the the campaign just just exploded. Now, I at that stage I was pretty naive in terms of financial management, and I didn't have a budget. I didn't run on budgets. I didn't produce a budget. I wasn't even doing monthly uh, monthly accounts. I had a financial controller and at the end of six months, so that was the middle of 05, at the end of 05, I said to my financial controller, I really want to know at the end of December how much we've made. I'm keen to find out what it was because demand had gone through the roof and awareness was flying and we were getting great distribution and retailers who had knocked us back were suddenly knocking on our doors saying, please, can I carry your product? And I'll tell you what it was. It was the 10th of January. He came to me and showed me that we had lost a quarter of a million dollars in that six months and it absolutely gutted me. And I thought, oh, fuck. Um, we've exploded in sales and we've lost money. Does that mean when we double sales, we're going to lose half a million? And I got, I got all the staff together. I'd say all the staff, there were six or seven of us. I got seven people arrayed together and I said, look, this is the situation. And what really worried me, and our overheads were running at about 100 grand a month, and the previous January, we turned over $17,000. And so I thought, I thought, Jesus, this is, a, this is a disaster and waiting. What have I done? And I, I got everybody together and I said, guys, look, this is a situation. We're going to give it until, um, I think I said we'll give it until the middle of March to turn this around. And if we haven't done that, uh, I'm basically going to fire everybody except for the person that raises and collects the, the invoices and collects the, the, the debtors uh, and the person that sh- that picks and packs the product and ships them. Um, so we have to turn it around, but particularly, as I say, having turned over 17 grand the previous January. Well, at the end of January, that January, we turned over $350,000 and we made our first profit. So on the probably the... 8th of February, we were running an ad in trade publications in the UK looking for a general manager. <laughs> and at the end of, at the end of February, uh, my, um, my head of commercial and I were in London taking interviews. I mean, literally it went from, it looks like we're going to have to fire everybody and put it on, um, on life support through to now let's office, open an office in the UK. Now, you mentioned that slogan, which was a great slogan, by the way, but it also got you into some hot water because down the track (laughs) you um, kind of were having athletes doing endorsements for you that you had paid and then the ads were still running saying you don't pay people. Then the ACCC got involved. Like, can you say what happened? How did that get off track like that? How was no one going, hang on a sec, we'd better pull those ads. It's not true anymore. 
And 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 absolutely. And and that comment was was made beforehand. And we ran that ad because initially we ran the ad. Uh, one of the channels we ran was on SBS during the Tour de France in 2005. And then as we were coming up to the Tour de France in 2006, and we had no intention of running it again, uh, we got contacted by SBS saying they had some distressed ad space. Did we want to take it? And the, the question was raised, could we run it? Well, what we had done is we had converted a bunch of those sales relationships with clubs from cash sales to value in kind. So instead of a club paying us $30,000 in cash for product, we got $30,000 worth of marketing benefits. As well as that, we had a separate relationship with Melbourne Demons, the AFL club, where we purchased, I think from memory, $150,000 worth of ground signage that was separate to the nature of our relationship with them. And so I took the call and said, yeah, I said, yeah, absolutely. We hand on heart, we can still say we don't pay sports stars to wear our products, they pay us. And that was a mistake. That was the first mistake. The biggest mistake I made was how we managed that process because when we were approached by ACCC, instead of saying, oops, sorry, we fucked up, um, we'll, pay, uh, we'll pay a fine and we'll, we'll do whatever to apologise, explain the circumstances and the context and why we've done it. Um, I was given some advice to say I should fight it and I fought it and it cost me several million dollars. Uh, it, was, it was a really, really, really dumb thing to do. What would you say was the biggest learning you kind of made from such a kind of public misstep? Oh, it was, was, was simply that, you know, put your hand up early, accept responsibility, um, open, open your mind because I was very closed-minded at that stage. I was, I was adamant. I was adamant that we were in the right because we were selling. And, and when I say that we'd converted some transactions, so if we had 100, if we had 100, 100 sales to elite clubs uh, and institutions, we would have converted about eight of them to sponsorship partnerships. So there's still 92, there still would have been 92 that were cutting checks and paying us money, but it didn't, it, it, it didn't occur to me that it just takes one. It just takes one that then basically ruins that, that claim and that statement. And it was a harsh learning curve but a necessary one. And in the, in, the, in the harsh light of day, I'm actually glad that we went through it because, like I said, the, what we, should have, we should have put the hand up and said, sorry, we cocked up. Um, <clears throat> there, were, there was some context around it, but it's no excuse. Uh, we'll pay the fine and move on. And I reckon, I reckon the fine would have been 50K, uh, but instead it, it ended up costing, I think, somewhere in the vicinity of, by the, including because I had to reimburse my private equity partner, which is another massive fuck up. But included, including that, it probably cost us two, two and a half million dollars. Oh my god! And who was that legal team? Don't say. But my god, <laughs> I'd be furious with them for that original advice, where they said, "Oh no, you'll be fine. You can fight that." <laughs> uh, and look, I know. Don't, don't get me wrong; it's not that black and white because I was quite adamant of our position as well at the time. So, I, you know, at the end of the day, it's not their fault; it's my fault. Um, but yeah, they, they certainly didn't sit me down and say, "Jamie, you're in real trouble here. Take our advice, do it this way." But that didn't come. 
But anyway, you live and learn. We'll hear more about Jamie Skin's journey and his new business, EO, after this short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back on First Act with Jamie Fuller. Uh, Jamie, as we we touched on, you know, you've been very vocal on issues like doping in sport, homophobia and corruption in cycling, rugby, soccer. Skins famously declared itself the first ever official non-sponsor for FIFA to protest its treatment of World Cup migrant workers. When you take a stand like that, how conscious are you of, of what it might mean for business? Do you mean in a positive or a negative sense, Adam? That is why my question's open. <laughs> okay. Because um, I think, I think generally nowadays it's a very positive thing to be taking us. I think brands are really, really respected. Um, but there was a time where there would be a lot of fear, and I think there's probably a few moments, there are probably some brands now that are still a bit fearful to, to be values-based, you know, to really take a big stand. Oh, sure. And, and look, we, we did this back in 2012 was the first action. Mm. So in those days, no one did it. And we did it initially. It was in the wake of the Lance Armstrong scandal. Mm. And the reason we did it was because after after the what they call the reasoned decision, which was the, 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 the paper that supported Armstrong's banning from US anti-doping, after that was published, it was very clear. It was absolute black and white. And I thought that we were going to see a whole bunch of cycling sponsors come out and cycling industry come out and condemn not just what had happened with Lance but what was going on with the UCI, the global governing body. And three weeks after absolute silence, I thought, this is fucking crazy. I mean, someone's got to do it. And I thought, well, it might as well be me. And so that was that was the first sort of brave step and everything went from there. Now, through that journey, which was effectively using purpose as a marketing tool, a, it tied in beautifully with our our principles of fueling the true spirit of competition. So that that gave us a legitimacy, that gave us a right and a platform to either enter conversations or start conversations about issues that revolve around integrity in sport. Uh, and, and so it was a, I mean, that was my key aha moment was when we when we phrased fueling the true spirit of competition as underpinning our DNA and values. That was the real aha moment for the brand. But as we then progressed post-2012 and then we could move into other areas, not just in cycling but in football and Olympics and doping and all that sort of shit, basically we got braver and braver. And so in 2015 when in the, in the, wake, of, in the wake of the World Cup being awarded to Qatar in a massively corrupt fashion, uh, I flew to Doha and was set up with a fixer and the fixer facilitated me to have access to labour camps because if you know anything about Qatar, they've got a population of something like 2.3 million. And of the 2.3 million, 150,000 are Qatari nationals and the rest is migrant labour. So there's over 2 million migrant workers working under a system called kafala, which is slavery. 
it's indentured slavery. So when a, a, a worker goes there, they have their passport confiscated and they are tithed, they are bound to their employer and they need their employer's permission to leave the country. I mean, it's, it, is, it's, it is slavery. And so I was able to get smuggled into labour camps and took hidden camera footage of the most appalling living conditions you could possibly imagine. Went back to London and then we cut a short film called The Hypocrisy World Cup. And the purpose of that was to target the eight sponsors of FIFA. Now, several of those sponsors were a waste of time. Gazprom, the big Russian gas drive, it's pointless going after them for issues of integrity. Adidas. Adidas, most people don't know, Adidas as a brand is responsible for, for the uh, culture of corruption in world sports governance. Um, I won't bore you with it now, but it's, it's, it's absolute that that's the case. So Adidas have been tied to that for some time, and then there are a couple of Korean brands. But the big ones that we were going after were primarily Coke, Visa and McDonald's. And so we, we launched that film and we launched it in London uh, in a bipartisan launch with, and I had with me, partnered with me, a lady called Sharon Burrow. Now, Sharon was head of the um, uh, ACTU here in Australia, the, the, the Trade Union Confederation here in Australia for many years and now is head of the International Trade Union Confederation in Belgium. So she's probably the world's most influential union leader. And on the other side, I had a gentleman who's a member of parliament for the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom, Damien Collins. And so we came at this with a bipartisan approach to say that corruption in sport is not on, World Cup corruption's not on, and constructing the World Cup in Qatar on the back of slavery is unacceptable for the, for the crown jewel. And that led to uh, finally getting Coca-Cola, Visa and McDonald's to come out and condemn FIFA, and not just condemn FIFA, but demand that Sepp Blatter resign. Now, until that point, that had never happened before, uh, and Sepp Blatter resigned as president of FIFA. So it was a, that was a major moment because we did that by shaming them into coming out and making an appropriate statement, whereas previously there was a cookie-cutter approach from all brands, which was, you know, but this is what we stand for and we expect the, the entities that we sponsor to say to, to believe in the same thing. But in that case, we got them to come out and say, okay, that's it, mate, you've got to go. Wow. It's so interesting because even in that time from 2015 to 2022 now, ESG, environmental, social and governance, has become such a major thing in uh, in the corporate world, you know, in big business. And, um, and it can, you know, that can the value of a business is hinges on on a lot of these issues about how people are how people are treated around the world how businesses are dealing with environmental issues um and that you know from what you're doing then i've i've read online that the the campaign generated more than 50 million in publicity for skins how how do you measure that campaign success because you've got the social change that you've created and the kind of corporate behavioral change but then also for your brand, how does how is that? How do you measure that success? Yeah, look, uh, and, and I was very upfront all the way through this journey, and all the way each of those campaigns when I was particularly confronted by journalists putting it to me that it was a cynical uh, marketing exercise. It, my response was always the same, which is absolutely this is part of our uh, part of our business strategy, and it's part of our brand strategy, because if you can if you're spending X amount of dollars in marketing budget. If you can split that and divert some of that into social campaigns such as these, which 
are doing good, then my objective was to drastically reduce the amount of what I call the really boring marketing cookie-cutter shit and increase the purpose marketing because if we can show a connection between that and brand building, awareness, education and, and subsequently sales, then what we wanted to do was, was to be a bit of a template and uh, a bit of a, a, a pathfinder for other companies to be less conservative and say, we can do this too, you know, to be able to, 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 to put a greater level of accountability. And whether we're talking about people running FIFA or, your, or, or, or the NRL or, frankly, politicians, uh, it doesn't matter. This is, this is our money. I mean, you know, sports rorts or car parks, this is our money. This is taxpayer funds that's being diverted to benefit, to benefit these politicians. And in FIFA's case, this is this Seth Blatter was in was employed by FIFA, and FIFA's not owned by the people that work at FIFA. It's not even owned by the head of the heads of the two hundred and eleven uh, member federations. It's owned by you and me. This is our sport, and that's our entity. And to have someone like Seth Blatter or the president of FIFA having a secret package salary and us not being able to ask the question or get an answer as to how much they're being paid, that's just wrong. Not to mention the fact that in Switzerland it operates under a charity status. And the idea that you can have an entity operating under a charity status for tax purposes that doesn't have to disclose that sort of stuff, yet can operate in such a corrupt manner that even the Department of Justice in the United States classified them as a, as, as a RICO entity. You know, talked about, talked about corruption. I mean, these are words associated with a mafia. And that's the pitch that I made to Visa, which is how can you as a sponsor of FIFA sit back and be satisfied that they're lumped in with the mafia as a RICO entity by the Department of Justice? You guys have to do something here, not just mouth platitudes. So I was, I was getting back to your point, Adam. I was very clear that, you know, that this, the objective was always to build the brand and gain a commercial benefit from doing this. But at the same time, if, if we can also hold these people to account and get better levels of governance and better qualities of governance, then it's a win-win for everybody. Um, how we measure it, I don't know. I mean, you know, you could go the media monitoring route and that's mm. where that 50 million bucks came from. Number, yeah. That's not, you know, that, that it's hard to do a direct correlation with, you know, what did your sales go up by? Yeah. Well, one of the other things that you've done, and I think we've talked a bit more on the global scale, but if we talk more locally uh, in Australia, you helped uh, establish the rainbow round of sport with a number of major sporting codes uh, to help boot out homophobia. That was 2016. Where are we sitting now? The issue hasn't just gone away because of the marriage equality vote. We've, you know, Josh Cavallo was the first openly gay you know, Australian football player. I mean, he's, there, there are still so few out and proud players. Uh, where, where, what do, where do you see this? Where do you see where we're at now as far as homophobia in sport goes? Yeah, and look, and, and, and obviously the, the levels of, um, uh, of, of, of homosexuality in sport are significant. You know, they're, they're there. There's no question. It's not like it's not like it doesn't exist. But there's still this massive fear, and it's crazy. It's it's loopy. 
I mean, put it in context, what, what did we see a few years ago? I, I forget who it was. It was Australian cricketer, I think. I think it would have been Aaron Finch who tweeted a photo uh, of he was out to dinner with um, his business partner and his mother, I think, and he put on the, 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 the tweet, you know, I'm having dinner with my partner and my mother, and people thought that he was coming out. And he was inundated with a massive amount of positive messages and love and support. And he had to come out and say, look, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not coming out. It's my business partner, not my life partner. Um, but it was a really interesting test case to show that it's not like it was 10 years ago. And that I, I would love to think that, and you said with Josh Cavallo, and he got an enormous amount of love and support when he came out. And I would love to think that this is paving the way for it to happen more and more. But history shows us that primarily it happens after they retire. We saw Dame Kelly Holmes in London, well, you know, the Olympic gold medalist. Uh, she's, she's just come out um, well after she retired. Let's get back to something um, a bit more business focused, but probably also equally difficult discussion for you. Um, Skins filing for bankruptcy in 2019. I mean, you'd spent 17 years at the helm of that business. It must have been absolutely heartbreaking to let go of your brand. And I just can't imagine that moment. Can you walk us through the events that led to your decision? Yes, yeah, sure. Absolutely. And it was, it was truly gutting. No question. Uh, it, it, it all started in 2007, just prior to the GFC. Uh, I made a huge mistake. I did an awful, appalling deal with private equity at the end of 07. It was December 07. So it was right on the cusp of the GFC. Uh, and the, the deal I, I did gave them a guaranteed return and a huge guaranteed return. And in 2012, I had to buy my private equity partners out because if I didn't, they were going to essentially they were going to usurp. They were going to take over the whole business. And the only way I could do that was to borrow a sinking great amount of money out of Japan. So I did that and bought them out and got back to 100% ownership of Skins. But what that did was that changed everything within the business. We went from being a dynamic, entrepreneurial organisation focused on building brand and doing the right thing to cash, 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 cash. We've got all this debt. We've got to pay down debt. And that led us to do some very, very stupid things for short-term benefit, which killed the company in the long term. And it became a, a spiral. And probably, and, and, and I had moved to Switzerland in 07 and set up the global operations there. And so in January 19, that led me to put the global operation into bankruptcy in Switzerland. Uh, and... As horrible as that moment was, I can tell you the lead up to that, the probably three years before were just three years of hell um, of going through that slow motion train wreck and trying everything to save it. But at the end of the day, the amount of debt we were carrying was just uh, overawing and it, it ended up where we ended up. Um, was there any kind of Hail Mary moment where you thought, actually, I'll be able to pull it all back together? Yeah, there were a couple of couple of times when we were on the cusp of doing deals that it wasn't going to pull it back together for me, but it was potentially going to save the business. 
And I might add, when I did the deal in uh, Borrow the Money Out of Japan, that was also contingent on um, firing our Japanese distributor who was sensational and amazing and had done a brilliant job. And the company that lent us the money, they took over the distribution rights. And that double fucked us. Um, to put to put it in to put that in context, we were making a fifty percent margin out of our Japanese sales. Uh, the year before that happened, we had sold them eight million US dollars worth of product, and so we made four million US straight to the bottom line. Um, within twelve months of them taking over the distribution, that eight million had dropped to two, and it then dropped lower than that. So that 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 pulled. Three plus million US, which at that stage I think was getting close to five Aussie, and that money was critical for making our repayments and funding the business. Um, and so I had realised quickly that we were in trouble with our Japanese business, and started to engage with some potential investors to look at bringing them on board and trying to save the business. And I realised then I wasn't going to, I wasn't not only keep ownership, but I wasn't going to keep control of the business and the company. Um, but the, the, the problem is, says, in this world, when they smell blood and the moment they can they see you're in trouble, then uh, it just it, it becomes self-fulfilling and you end up, it ends up going down the gurgler and uh, it got to the point where the attitude became one of, oh, well, we'll, we'll rather we'll sit back and wait for you to go broke and then we'll pick up the pieces. We think it's cheaper to do it that way. Mm. That's just heartbreaking. Yeah. But, look, and I, I, I had left Switzerland. I moved out. I, so the business was based there, but I moved out of there in sort of a couple of years beforehand in 17. And when the shit hit the fan, I was, I was in a little Airbnb in a cottage in, uh, up in the Leicestershire in the north of England or the Midlands of England. And if you'd asked me before what was going to happen, I knew I was going to go into a deep depression. I knew I was going to go into a through hell. And I would have predicted that that would have lasted anything from three to six months. And my wife and kids were back in Australia. They'd come back. So I was on my own in this cottage on this farm um, going through this shit. And... Uh, I, I, like I say, I, 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 I knew it was going to be three to six months of pure agony and hell. Um, it was eleven days, and on the on the on the twelfth day, I had a conversation with myself, where I spoke to myself as if I as if I was giving advice to somebody else in my shoes, and miraculously, this fog lifted, and everything became clear. And it was like a, a switch was flicked. It was it was unbelievable. And suddenly I had clarity. Suddenly I looked at things in context because you get so wound up in yourself. You get so caught up in your own problems. Uh, I, then, I then realized that, you know what, compared to what everybody else in life goes through, I actually, this is, this is nothing. <laughs> um, and, that, and that changed everything for me. That's such a powerful mindset switch, you know, that and it sort of happens for a lot of people when you hit some sort of rock bottom or you hit some low that you find some sort of clarity and you come through it. That must have been, I mean, obviously you're now, you have a new venture, um, EO. 
and you probably come out of that, you know, that skin's experience with this new clarity and this new sense of purpose. How, uh, tell us about EO and, and then what that's about. Yeah, I mean, look, Skins, Skins was a great idea and a great concept, um, but frankly it was a one-trick pony. It was a pair of tights with a technology today that's 20 years old um, and nothing new has happened and, frankly, I don't think anything new will happen with it. I came back uh, I, after then six months. I had six months in Euro- UK and Europe sort of winding shit up and going through all the, the, the nightmare that happens when you've got not just the the global entity in Switzerland, but then you've got entities in eight different countries. And at one point I had 14 different lawyers working for me. So I had to go through all that rubbish. And then I came back here and I started thinking I I wanted to to do something in the elite sports space. And I was developing a, a nifty little idea around ankle injuries and prevention thereof. And in early 2020, uh, the following year in January, I was introduced to a chap who was chief scientist at New South Wales Institute of Sport, a guy called Dr. Kenneth Graham. And I was introduced to Kenneth to pick his brains about my little ankle idea. And very quickly, I realised that Kenneth, by virtue of the fact that he'd been operating for a quarter of a century at the very forefront of elite athlete performance from a sports science perspective, i.e. he knows exactly what moves the needle for elite athletes, coupled with a deep passion for research. And still today he sits on the Research Review Committee at the Australian Institute of Sport, along with a clear understanding of emerging technologies. When you put those three factors together, you can conceive devices and products that can not only help elite athletes perform better, but then can be marketed and sold to people that are very serious about what they do in sport. So just to wrap up, because I think we've, we've covered so much ground in our chat today, to wrap up, uh, what are you most excited for looking forward? You know, obviously you've got EO and um, that's going to be rolling out. What are you, what are you most excited about uh, going forward with that brand? So the first step is creating the base and the platform and, and having products getting commercial and in the marketplace and building the brand and creating brand awareness. But the thing that really turns me on is then using that brand platform as as the platform to go back and do the sorts of things I was doing before around athlete advocacy and duty of care because all the products that we create are underpinned by by a vision of duty of care. So it's about helping athletes not just perform better, but last longer? How do we minimise the need for needles? How do we how do we minimise the number of concussions or reduce the consequences and the impact of those concussions so that you're not, you, you don't have those problems later in life? So it's, it's about athlete advocacy and, and, and doing what we can to give them a, a better life. Jamie Fuller, such a pleasure to chat with you on today's first act. Now head to eolab.com for more info on Jamie's latest venture. And don't forget to give this podcast a five-star review if you've enjoyed the chat. Thanks for listening and join us next week for another fantastic first act conversation. Thanks, Jamie.